invite you to take your copy of God's Word and join me in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, as we continue our series that we've called Steady, trying to think about how to live a life that is centered and grounded in and on the person of Jesus Christ. And tonight we're going to turn our attention to the verses where Paul prays or informs the Colossians how he prays for them. And so um, thankful that you would take time out of your schedule. I know this is a busy time of the year for all of us, um, which really translates into what is going to become our priority and what are we going to be marked by during our very busiest season. And you all and I have chosen uh, the better, which is to be gathered together around uh, the word tonight. And so I want to encourage you with that and let you know uh, how encouraged I am as your pastor to be gathered with you. If this is your first time with us, do invite you to grab one of these connection cards that's in front of you and fill that out. And then you can leave it in the back there on the table or on the bar or hand it to myself or one of the other adult leaders here tonight. Uh, but again, excited to continue making our way through the book of Colossians. And uh, no, we had last week off because of Thanksgiving. So if you're there in Colossians chapter one, if you would stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word. Tonight, Paul is going to address the issue and we are, by extension, the issue of praying for Christians and how we should be committed to specifically praying for the growth of those that we worship with on a regular basis. So here in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, this is the word of the Lord. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and longsuffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. This concludes the reading of God's word. May he bind it to our hearts and burn it into our souls. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this evening humbled by the fact that we even get to do this. Humbled by the fact that we get to gather together as believers, covenanted together as members of a church and as disciples of you. And to worship you through the singing of songs that prepare our hearts to hear from your word. And now, Father, as we enter into a season of the preaching and proclaiming of your word, we ask that you would move in a mighty way through it. So, Father, we are not arrogant hopefully tonight, or blind to the fact that there are others, even in our city, who are gathering tonight. We think of uh, Park Crest Baptist Church and, and their college ministry, Paul Ebert leading them. We ask that you would be with them this evening. We think of Ridgecrest Baptist Church here in town, Father, this week as they examine and pray over a new pastor to lead their church. We ask that you would give them wisdom as they vote this Sunday, a new pastor to be uh, shepherding their flock together. And Father, we also want to come before you and acknowledge that we're not the only ones, that the United States of America is not your chosen land, but rather that we have missionaries 
all across this globe tonight who are doing your work. We think of the Hughes family working in Southeast Asia or the Hunter family who is working in South Africa. God, we ask that you would minister through them, that you would see many peoples from different tongues and tribes and nations bow before you as you write about in Revelation chapter 4, God. We also know tonight, God, that there are great areas of our world where there are people who have never heard the name of Christ. We think of countries in Northern Europe, specifically Poland and Lithuania and Latvia tonight that have unreached, unengaged peoples. We think of inside the 1040 window of Yemen, the UAE, and Oman tonight. And I pray that out of our college ministry, you would begin to call college students, that you begin to call uh, young dating couples who, who intend to get married to go and to risk everything uh, to share the name of Christ among these peoples, that you would raise people up out of our church to uh, take the gospel where you have not been named. And we'll be so quick to praise you for that. But now, Father, we ask as we turn our attention to your word that you would move through it, for it alone will change us only if we submit to you and its authority. And it's in your son's name we ask these things. Amen. You know, we tend to love characters in movies or stories that are tenacious and that never give up. We find them to be encouraging. You know, we love those movies with Rocky Balboa where he is tenacious and probably one of the most underrated films of all time in the sense of a great sports movie that ends in a tie that leads to like seven more movies, although Rocky V should be excluded from the canon immediately. But nevertheless, we love and find ourselves magnetically drawn to tenacious people. We like a good underdog story, whether it be in a movie or in real life, we, we tend to gravitate towards those people. But what's ironic is while we'll celebrate the tenaciousness of a Rocky Balboa type character or of an entrepreneur who never seems to give up on their goals or dreams. It's hard to find Christians who are equally tenacious because we really are fine with you following and trusting in Christ, provided that you never become too radical. And so as a result of that we tend to look for the least common denominator. We kind of look around for people who aren't really that committed to following Christ as our example. But what's ironic is, is that you drop someone in the middle of a group of Christians that is zealous for the Lord, and yet at the same time is not unnerved by someone maybe making fun of them or mocking them or, or telling them to be quiet that person also is magnetic to the people around them. But when we look to the Bible, there's probably no one as tenacious as the Apostle Paul. Both pre-conversion as a theological leading thinker, and then post-conversion as one of the first missionaries that we ever see in the Bible. But he's not just tenacious in the sense that he is 
an example of how to reach people for Christ. He's an example in how we should pray and how we should think about praying for other Christians. The Apostle Paul writes 13 letters in the New Testament. Of those 13 letters, 10 of them contain a thanksgiving portion where the Apostle Paul specifically lists out the way that he is praying for other Christians. And tonight, what I hope to do in the time we're gathered is to look at Paul's prayer for the Colossians and ask this question. If the Bible is authoritative for life and practice, and if the Apostle Paul is an example to us of how we are to pray, and I believe that both of those things are true, how then are you and I supposed to pray for other Christians? I think we oftentimes are encouraged by other people, other Christians, but very rarely do we look to the Bible for our examples of how to pray for other people. One thinks of Robert Murray McShane or uh, Andrew Bonar or other great Christians throughout church history who have, who have been known and marked by a tenacious desire to pray. And we will read books about people or we'll hear stories or we'll know people who are great prayers and we'll say, I want to be like them, only missing the fact that those examples have for centuries looked to the Bible as the means to encourage them and how they should think about praying. So tonight, you might be the person who thinks, I'm not a very good prayer. I'm not marked by being a prayer warrior. And I think it's far too easy to remove ourselves and excuse ourselves for our lack of zeal when it comes to the issue of prayer. And so tonight, I want us to just turn to these particular verses, four of them in particular, and let them shine into our heart and ask ourselves, how should we pray? I think the Apostle Paul in this, these four verses gives us two specific ways that we should be praying for other Christians. The first being a prayer for knowledge. Look at verse number nine. For this reason, we also, thinking of himself and Timothy, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul's prayers are a regular habit of who he is. They're a consistent marker, a, a defining characteristic of who he is. It's not that the Apostle Paul finds himself praying periodically or sporadically or every once in a great while for these Colossians. He says, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Paul's prayer is not based on the fact that the Colossians are facing false teachers. He prays for them this way as a regular habit. And a lot of times we'll think, man, Apostle Paul, what a guy. And he should be modeled here because he understands the right way to pray for those around him. Look at verse 9 again. He says, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So we, we don't cease to pray for you and we ask regularly. And this is what we're asking for, that you might 
be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul understands that they must, the Colossians must be filled with this knowledge, and it can't come from any worldly source. We are obsessed with knowledge as a culture. We're obsessed with it. We carry around little boxes in our pockets that when we get into an argument and no one seems to know who's right, we just say, hold on, we'll Google it. I don't know, Google it. I don't know, Google it. Which is ironic because, I mean, you have other search engines. I mean, everybody knows about Bing. I mean, that that rock-solid platform for knowledge. I just don't, I don't think that that would have ever caught on. I don't know, Bing it. No, just doesn't roll off the tongue like Google. We're obsessed with it. We're obsessed with sound bites, though. We digest knowledge in 160 characters or less. And the only reason why we do it in 160 characters or less is because we found it difficult to put it into 140. Unless you live in Korea, where they still are limited to 140 characters. We're obsessed with it. You're obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with it. We can't handle not knowing something, and we'll immediately look to the Internet as our infallible source and guide. But the Apostle Paul knows this isn't going to come from the Colossians Googling their way out of a false teacher situation. They don't need the world's understanding of how to deal with their problem, which is exactly what a lot of your friends give you when you ask for advice they give you a worldly way of responding to a problem or a worldly way of responding to an issue but paul understands that the way forward for these particular colossian believers is that they would be informed by the very word of god and it's not a new type of knowledge not a new type of understanding but it's a comes as a result of growing to know Christ better as their Savior. They've come to saving faith. Now they must grow in Christ. It's kind of like having the power to do something, but you have to know how to use the power before you do it. This is always what got Tim the Tool Man Taylor into problems. He wanted more power. The only problem is he knew where to get more power. He just didn't know how to implement it. It's the same thing that we struggle with. We're not tapped in regularly to the power of Christ. We're tapped into the power of self or the power of friend or the power of who. I mean, who knows where your power is coming from? It's whatever is filling your mind that you lean on in a moment to make a decision. The scary is, is who people rely on. You know, growing up, uh, I'm the oldest of three kids. And growing up, um, I'm the oldest. I just said that. Then my brother, Corey, is the middle child. And then my sister, Amy, is the youngest. And growing up... My brother, Corey, had two friends named Joel and Derek. Um, 
Corey is two years younger than I am. And there would be many nights where we would sit around the table and a discussion would break out and my brother would speak as an authority on a specific issue. Now, this is before um, Google is readily available. And he would speak as an expert on the field. And inevitably, in those conversations, my dad would eventually turn and look at my brother Corey and say, how can you be so sure of what you speak? And my brother with the confidence of a rocket scientist, would look back at my parents and say, well, Joel and Derek told me. At which one point, as a 10-year-old, I remarked at the dinner table, I'm glad to know that we're relying on the brain power of three eight-year-olds. It's not well-received. So the Lord is growing to me in that area, hopefully. Where are you tapped into for your spiritual discernment or just your discernment in general? Does the, the word of God govern where you're going, what you're doing, how you're doing it, how you're living? He says that you may know, you may come and be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Are you in the regular habit of praying for your friends to grow in God's wisdom, in God's understanding, so that they might be spiritual instead of being worldly. How do you pray for your friends? Do you even pray for your friends? Do you even care about them? Do you care about their spiritual condition? Do you care about the people in your small group? Do you care about the people in the college ministry? Do you care about the people that are leading you who are responsible? I'm going to be real honest with you. As we move forward as a college ministry and as we seek to, see, to know and discern the will of God, my greatest need from you is that you would get on your face and pray out for me on a regular basis that I would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for where we're to go, what we're to do, what ministries we're supposed to start, how we're to engage campuses, how we're to reach people for the glory of God and the joy of all people. I need you to pray for me just as much as you need me to pray for you. But it must be done the right way. This is, Paul is praying in a way that the Holy Spirit would be activated, that it would be turned in such a way that it would take the knowledge of the word and it would transform that knowledge into spiritual wisdom. One only has to think of uh, how plants grow. That the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. It's about the essential part of my scientific knowledge. We need God to take our knowledge of the word and use the Holy Spirit to turn it into spiritual wisdom for us. And he does that by convicting us of our need to change and to grow. But it's not enough for me, just me to pray this. I need people praying for me on a regular basis. I need to pray for you on a regular basis that it would turn. Because you're 18, 19, 20, and, and moving towards making major life decisions. And I'm on, hopefully, on my knees praying out to God that he would give you wisdom as you make these decisions. So we think about praying for knowledge and I'm just going to tell you tonight that if you're sitting in here and you don't know Christ, it doesn't matter how much you pray for God's will 
you're not going to know it because he's already given it to you in his word. His greatest and most important desire is that you would come to, to know Christ, to be converted, to be brought from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. Furthermore, Christian, there are certain things on which you don't have to pray for God's will. He's laid it out pretty clearly. I'll give you one example and we'll move on. One only has to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians to know what God's example or his desire or his will is in regards to your sexual life. The Apostle Paul says, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you flee from it. So when the Bible is explicitly clear about what God's will is, you don't have to pray about it. It's there. It's in his word. Obey it. That's the call for the Christian. A lot of times we're like, oh, man, I don't know if I should do this or do that. If it contradicts scripture, you don't have to worry about whether or not you should do it. You know the Holy Spirit should convict you as, it, as he indwells in you to be holy. He's pushing you towards that. It's very challenging. But here's the problem. We get to the end of this one particular point, and we have to ask ourselves, though this is not essentially about what Paul is praying for himself, it's what Paul is praying for other people. And what ends up happening, the more and more we read the Bible, especially in a culture that's dominated by self-sufficiency and self-aggrandizement, is to eventually turn everything about the Bible into something about us. Which is not what this text is doing. It's pushing you to think about how you might pray, how you might think, how you might implore and ask on behalf of your friends, on behalf of your small group, on behalf of the people in your college ministry, on behalf of the people in your church, that they might grow. Yes, it's good to pray these things for yourself, but it is even more essential that you be praying them for the people around you on a regular basis. So the Apostle Paul begins with a prayer for knowledge, and then he moves into a prayer for behavior. This is a second thought. And verses 10 through 12 are dominated by this idea and by this understanding of a prayer for the Colossians' behavior. Look at verse number 10. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. In addition to praying for that these Colossians might have spiritual knowledge, he then turns his attention and begins to pray for their own behavior. And he lists out for all of you, um, I was going to call you, I guess it's grammarians. I got that right. He lists four participles, four, four participial phrases that we're going to walk through where he's praying specifically how they might walk worthy. Because one of the great things about the Bible is it doesn't just stop like we are praying that you might walk worthy 
of the Lord. But we're praying that you might walk worthy of the Lord, followed by this phrase, fully pleasing him, because that's our desire is that you would walk in a way that would be fully pleasing to him. But just in case you might be tempted to think weird things about how you might pull this off, I'm going to give you four ways that you that I am praying for you that you would walk worthy of the Lord. And so he begins with being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Two participle phrases, one being fruitful in every good work. And this actually points back to verse number six. Look at verse number six, which Paul is talking about the gospel here. He says, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So now Paul's praying that I'm praying that you would walk worthy, bearing forth, bringing forth, producing fruit in every good work. That the gospel is actually producing fruit from your life. Right doctrine, right theology, right knowledge of the word leads to right living. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. For those of you who want bigger words to impress your friends at your next dinner party. Right doctrine should lead to right living. What often happens, this is the danger that we can fall into. What often happens is we become people who want to be Bible nerds without being Bible appliers. We know a lot about the Bible, but we don't apply it to our lives. Where the person, I just remember this, this is the illustration that came to me when I was thinking about this. I remember being Jared's intern in 2012, and we still did youth camp here in this facility and not this one specifically, it didn't exist, but in that building, we did uh, youth camp, and they would do a game show with Bible trivia. And I was tasked with getting Bible trivia, and it had to get increasingly harder. And I found online a book of Bible trivia that was like in PDF format, going from A to Z in levels of difficulty. And I remember thinking, well, let's put some Z questions in towards the end, because we, I mean, we've got to make it challenging. They're, they're playing for actual, like, money and stuff. I don't really know why, but we did it. And I went to the back of that, and it was like, tell us the four camps of the nation of Israel that were on the east and the west wall, uh, or the east and the north, uh, in regards to the temple. And I'm like, who knows this? No one did in that youth camp, uh, by the way. But the reason why that's always stuck out with me is like, Someone actually spent the time, and, and God bless them, they probably wanted to put it on a map, but someone took that map and put it into a, a quiz show format where we're going, well, I know that these three tribes were north, these three tribes were east, these three tribes were west, and these three tribes are south. Okay. But is the word producing fruit in your life? Here's the deal. Like, we can become so in love with good Bible preaching and teaching that it hits only our head and never hits our heart. And then we become critical. We become critical because, well, this guy didn't know this, or he didn't 
use the Greek or the Hebrew or like our student pastor does this. I've been on trips with students from our ministry in high school, and sometimes it was very easy to tell that the blessing of having good Bible exposition can easily lead to pride in students who don't apply it to their lives. Because we would go to places, and I would watch them, and they would judge pastors trying to handle the Word of God faithfully. To which, as only a young seminary theologian and Bible professor can think in his mind, get up and do a better job. We must be careful to guard our hearts and make sure that right doctrine is leading to right living. And then in verse 11, or the end of verse 10, he moves and says, So I'm praying that you would be fruitful in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. And the way that the language is structured in the original text, what Paul's communicating here is that they would grow with a deeper love for Christ and God, that they would love God more and that they would grow in their knowledge of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Christian, you and I should be in a constant habit of growing to know more about God and the work accomplished by Christ. We should be in that regular habit. It should be something that we're defined by, but it should also be something that we're specifically praying for for the lives of the people that we worship with. I wonder how much of your prayer time is marked by genuine concern that from the last Lord's Day you gathered with your small group to the next Lord's Day that you gather together, that the 8 to 15 other people in your room that you are with week in and week out would be more in love with Jesus and more in love with his word come the next Lord's Day than they were the previous one? Or do we even think about each other? How many of you that are in discipleship groups, you know, you said, well, we want to ratchet up the level of discipleship in our lives, so that's why we said we're going to be a part of this, and so I'm going to come and take this seriously. How many of you have prayed that from your last D group meeting to the next, that spiritual maturity is taking place in the lives of the people that you sit with? I think it, it begs the question, you know, everybody wants to go to a friendly church, and everybody wants to go to a church that where people love each other. I don't think that we should not pursue those things. But if we're not in the regular habit of praying for someone to grow spiritually, do we actually love and care and are welcoming and friendly as we think we are? I think more often than not, we, we give ourselves a pat on the back because we come in here and for 15 minutes, we go around and we talk to people and we say, hey, what's going on? How's your week? Blah, blah, blah. Don't remember anything that they say. We sit in small groups and we hear prayer requests and we don't pray for people throughout the week. We're not unmoved. We're not moved. We don't care. We just don't. We just we're masquerading as people who love each other. Who are you thinking of? I'm thinking of myself in particular, but maybe you specifically. I don't know what your heart is like. I'm really glad for that at some level. But I do know what mine is like. I know I'm tempted to not think about other people, to not pray for them. So even in these first two phrases, we've been challenged immensely to think about how we might pray, but 
the Apostle Paul doesn't let up. He moves on to verse 11. He says, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy. So a lot of work to do in this one verse. He's praying that the Colossian believers might be strengthened with all might, according to God's glorious power. Why? So that they might have patience and longsuffering in their life and that it would produce joy. This is enough to, you could spend 20 minutes praying for one person for this. That in their lives, God's power might be so apparent through the reading of his word that that would be transformed into patience and long-suffering, but not just patience and long-suffering to put up with people, but with joy, that it produces joy, that they're more in love with God than they were before, and they're more patient and they're more long-suffering. This is the end. The, the goal is joy. This joy, this great joy, this grand joy, a joy that comes from delighting in God. But what does it all produce? The fourth phrase in verse 12. So we're praying that the believer would walk worthy. Okay, how's he going to walk worthy? Well, hopefully he's going to walk worthy by being fruitful in every good work, which will hopefully lead to increasing in the knowledge of God, which we hope will encourage him or her to be strengthened with all their might according to God's glorious power, that it might in the end produce this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. That that person might be thankful and the overarching theme of their life would be thankfulness to God for the redemption that is available through Jesus Christ. Luckily, he set the bar low for how we should pray for each other. Now, this is a high calling. It's a high calling to think about praying that the, the guys in my small group, and you say, why do you keep going back to small group? Well, as the college ministry continues to get bigger, by God's grace, this is not any credit to ourselves for that. And as you continue to invite your friends, the small group is where close relationships are made, where you can care for each other's souls. But you can't care for each other's souls if you don't know what's going on in each other's lives, which means that for some small groups, you might have to say at the end of prayer request time, all right, let's try it again and let's go a little deeper. You know, can you just pray for my cat? He has Alzheimer's. Like, what is that? We're, we're, we're going to have to have a lung replaced in our mouse this week. He's really tearing up my sister. Like, great. Not great. I don't know. Like, seems awfully invasive for a mouse. We've got to begin to ask ourselves, at what level do we really care about each other's spiritual condition? I know that's a funny joke about the mouse. Don't miss the point. The point is not the mouse. The point is, at what level do we genuinely care for each other? 
we care for each other the way the Apostle Paul did? Or do we care for each other in a way that if we were to go to the country club or the rotary club, we were to go to a fraternity or sorority on a campus, the way that we care for each other would model what the world does. There ought to be a distinctiveness between the way that Christians care about each other who they're covenanted with in church membership. Remember, when you join a church, you're saying, I'm going to give you the very best of myself and you're going to give me the very best of yourself. And together, we're going to love each other through the very worst parts of our collective self. Some of you, tonight, your greatest need is not to rethink the way that you pray because honestly the Lord doesn't hear your prayers because you're not genuinely converted. And your greatest need is to have a right relationship with God so that you can begin to pray this way for other people. Some of you in here tonight, though, have known Christ for some time. And if you're being really honest... You don't pray for other people this way, and you don't know if anybody's praying this way for you. But what we're all okay with doing is walking around like everything's okay and masquerading as if we don't need any help with our growth spiritually. And so on the outside, everything looks good. You know, there was a a Saturday that I remember very clearly as about a 12 or 13-year-old My dad loved and still does love to go duck hunting. And on this particular Saturday morning, he had convinced me to go with him along with my brother who loves duck hunting even more than my dad does. We've got those two guys who are crazy about it, and I'm just along to eat breakfast. It's pretty much a descriptor of my life. So long for the food. And as we're sitting in the duck blind, it's dark. My dad reaches for his coffee cup, opens his thermos, and pours some coffee into his coffee cup. And there's still no sunlight, and he takes a drink of his coffee, and it's a little bit chunky. My dad thought, uh, the guys come out to drink hot chocolate, probably just some leftover cake on powder, no big deal couple hours go by and the sunlight becomes apparent and sunrise takes place. I know some of you have never seen this, so I'm just telling you that that's what happens. The sun comes up in the morning. And as the sun begins to shine a little bit more clearly, it's still a little hazy out. He can't see. He takes another drink, more of the same. No big deal. It's just some crusty hot chocolate. A little longer goes by and the light comes up more And now he reaches down and begins to take a drink of his coffee and looks down in the cup and (laughs) comes as close as I've ever seen my dad to throwing up on the spot. Because on the inside of his coffee cup, growing up with tentacles is mold. Just little green tentacles just coming up the side of his coffee cup. That's what some of your spiritual lives look like right now. A clean coffee cup on the outside. But the mold of sin, the mold of spiritual apathy, 
the mold of lackadaisicalness when it comes to the things of Christ is crawling up the inside of you. And it's not until you confess that and your need for someone to help you not only deal with that, but to pray in such a way that would work as that great Don dish soap to come in and clean that mold. And the only thing that can clean it is the work of the Holy Spirit through the word and people praying for you and cleaning it up on the inside because we look more often than not like the Pharisees of the Old Testament and anew. Whitewashed tombs. Everything looks great on the outside, but you're spiritually dead on the inside. I don't mean spiritually dead in the sense of genuinely. You, you might say, well, David, I know I was genuinely converted. And I, I know Christ, but I, I've, I've, I've come to a, a position of spiritual apathy. I, are you suggesting that I've lost my salvation? Heavens, no. Read the New Testament. It's an impossibility. You have been brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. You're genuinely converted. It is possible for you to backslide. It is possible for you to sit here tonight and be rotting away on the inside. And tonight you need not to sit or to stand and just sing a song and pretend like everything's okay. But to get on your face and get right with God. And not wait for the semester to be over or when the life is, slows down, when things aren't too busy. Friends, we're not guaranteed another day. We're not guaranteed another moment. We're not guaranteed another breath. And the fact that God has allowed you to breathe through this entire preaching moment is an evident act of his grace in allowing the spirit to work through the word to bring you and draw you back to himself. Let's not wait. Let's not wait to give anything to go back to that moment. To give anything to go back to that moment and to take a flashlight when he thought it was just caked on hot cocoa mix. And the spotlight and go, stop drinking it. It's got mold. You're going to throw up. It's going to be a nasty story that you tell every time we're around each other. But we didn't. And some of you tonight, you're trying, even in this moment, to convince yourself it's nothing more than hot cocoa mix in the bottom of my cup. Friends, let's not be people who assume that when the Spirit starts to move and convict, that it's anything other than Him convicting us of our need for Him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.